So firstly, uh, thank you very much for accepting my invitation and accepting to be on my show. It's a pleasure. So I thought to tell about uh, you and uh, the work uh, you are doing to my audience. So can oh. you please introduce? Uh, I thought to tell about you and uh, your work uh, to my audience. Can you please introduce yourself to my audience? Sure. So my name is Shai Ramog. I'm the developer advocate of Lightroom and co-founder of Codename One, as well as a couple of other companies in the past. Uh, I've been a professional developer for around 30 years or so. Uh, that means literally the when I started programming for as a job, not when I started programming, which was much earlier than that. I guess I'm uh, older than I look. Uh, at least that over Skype in person, you can see the age uh, more clearly. Uh, I've been a speaker at quite a few conferences, uh, wrote a couple of books, uh, wrote a lot of open source code, uh, mostly in mobile, mostly in Java, uh, very active in the Java community since essentially the first beta. Uh, I've started writing articles about it back then, worked at Sun Microsystems for about a decade, or, uh, ran a consulting company for about a decade, that sort of stuff. So, you know, mostly I'm old. So, so you are into IT from long time? Pardon? So you are into IT from long time? Yeah, I've, I've been around the block for a while, yeah. So how can you able to manage all this? You're a speaker, you're an author, and you're a co-founder of your uh, of a company, ah, and uh, you're, a, you're a developer advocate. You're doing one thing, and then uh, you're doing another and another, and over time, experience sort of piles up. If you've been doing it for long enough, uh, you just end up doing lots of things simply because you've been around long enough. Uh, to be fair, I, I did. I do have more of uh, uh, work under my belt, mostly because I was an entrepreneur and I was a consultant for a long time. So when you're a consultant, it's kind of like a, a crash course because you're work, walking into a company and you need to be both the smartest person in the room and also not antagonize the people that you're there to help because they're paying you a consulting fee, which is a pretty big amount, and you need to prove that you're, um, you're worth that amount of money and that you know what you're doing. But it's their project. You can't insult the people that you came uh, to consult you, so you need to build them up and not tear them down. So there's also a big human aspect to that uh, process and that's a very difficult uh, balance beam to work walk on where you need to have a very high level of skills and you're constantly tested on your skill level and also you need to communicate well with people who sometimes don't really want you to succeed because they feel that you're stepping in on their territory so i did that for over a decade and I think that really helped um, my career in the long term, even though it was difficult and exhausting 
and frustrating, you know, because you're never really part of a company or a consultant. You, you're sort of like a nomad in a sense, but it, it's kind of like a boot camp. When you're done with it, you have a level of experience you can't possibly get in any other way. And uh, I credit a lot of my um, progress as a developer and as a human being to some degree, because uh, uh, a lot of developers, especially when they start off, uh, have a lot of ego. I definitely have a lot of ego still. But uh, letting go of that and being able to communicate with people who, with whom you sometimes disagree uh, is, I think, core to being a good developer, a good manager, and a good employee overall, and also a good human being, you know, because you need to communicate with people you care about, uh, who sometimes might not be in their best circumstances. And, and that's a skill you can just pull out of uh, your bag and use in pretty much any sort of situation. I find myself managing my kids sometimes, you know, uh, sort of scheduling them and and uh, negotiating them. Uh, I try to keep that down, you know, because it's still an emotional connection, not a technical one. But sometimes you need those uh, technical advantages with kids. So that's also uh, an important life skill. So uh, you are communicating with machine and uh as a developer and you're communicating with the human beings and how you are able to manage both. Uh, it is very important for you to be very, uh, 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 very, very uh, keen observer in order to make this possible and in order to make things uh, work uh, in a smooth way. How this uh, uh, possible, how you made this possible and uh, what are the key points that made you to make, uh, uh, to get, make you get success? So I think the key point is uh, keeping frustration down, uh, both mine and the other party's frustration, because basically both machines and people are more forgiving than we sometimes give them credit. Uh, if I don't understand something, I can ask a person, I can Google it today, which is you know something that didn't exist when I started off, but you can find out what the machine, what problem the machine has, and you can find out what problem a, per a person has when you talk and genuinely listen. And that was actually surprisingly a difficult thing for me as an engineer to listen properly, to shut up for a second, and try to understand what the other party actually was asking for, and. Uh, let go of my ego. Obviously, that's something that's specific to me. It's different for every person. But opening your eyes and ears is universal, whether you're connecting with uh, code and trying to understand it, whether you're connecting with a specific problem in an architectural domain, or if you're trying to connect to another person, listening to, to their grievances, accepting that even if they're technically wrong in your opinion, they still have an opinion and emotions and those might be valid and have validity even if I think they're uh, not as important. So when someone says I feel uh, undervalued or that I don't contribute to, to the team as much, that's a feeling that they have. I, 
I can say, look, I value you the most, but that's not enough. That's a feeling, uh, that's the objective reality as I see it, not something that a teammate or a subordinate would um, necessarily feel in that way. So I need to listen to how they feel and help them deal with the problem, not necessarily always try and offer a uh, solution that essentially erases their feelings because that's that's a type of mistake uh, to make with human beings, uh, unlike say for with a computer where you do want to fix a problem. With people, you need to sort of work together to solve that problem. And by the way, when we're talking about problems in computers, they're often problems of asking the right questions to the right people. So, you know, I don't necessarily know everything and having a team is part of the thing, not necessarily finding everything and trying to solve everything and being everything for everyone. And that's a big thing, being able to work with someone and ask the right questions and not be embarrassed about being stupid. And that's something that I got with old age, because as a younger guy, I'd always think, okay, I need to solve everything. I need to do everything. I need to implement everything. I need to know every single line of code and every project that I'm working on. And this isn't tenable in the long run. And it's not the most effective way of doing things because uh, I didn't evolve as well as I should have because I didn't pick up new things from other people as fast as I would have. And uh, today I'm more open about asking stupid questions. And, you know, the type of questions I see lots of times beginners being embarrassed about asking things, feeling, oh, people will think I'm stupid. And I ask these questions all the time because I'm not great with uh, certain technology X, Y, or Z. And the difference is I'm old and I'm not embarrassed by it. It's kind of something that got pulled out of me with time. And uh, younger people need to, um, inexperienced people uh, need to let go of that embarrassment. It's okay to ask questions. It's a basic part of learning, especially in our field where there's so much to learn. It's just technically completely untenable to, to know even remotely close to everything. You know, it might have been possible when I was younger. It's no longer the case. So light run tech, where this thought came from and what uh, made you to work on this? So uh, I was introduced to the guys uh, at Lightroom by Aran Bamun, who was uh, the CEO of uh, the San Israel Development Center. So I worked with him at San. And he said, look, there's these two guys uh, that are founding this company and you should really talk to them. It's an interesting company. And uh, I listen to essentially people who like that, who definitely know their stuff. And uh, so I went to a meeting with, uh, with them and they showed me the product, uh, essentially a very early draft of the product and explained the concept. And that blew me away. Uh, the concept, for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with Lightroom, uh, this is effectively a production debugger. You can debug your code uh, on the servers in production. Uh, 
using tools that are designed for this production environment. So you don't stop on a breakpoint like you would locally. You take a snapshot, which looks like a breakpoint. You get stack, a stack trace. You get variable vari values, so you can go over the stack trace and see what happened. But the thread doesn't stop there. It keeps running. It doesn't break. That's why we call it a snapshot. So you can get everything that you could from breakpoint, but without actually breaking, and you can learn stuff. Now, you can do it conditionally. So if, say, a specific user is having a problem with your system, you can place a snapshot uh, with a conditional uh, breakpoint, like, like you would a conditional breakpoint, at a specific point and get and see what he, he's seeing in terms of variables, in terms of stack and everything, and literally dig into the code to understand the problem that a specific user or a specific server might be having. You can do inject new logs into the code. So for instance, lots of times we have too many logs and then we have this huge bidding problem, or we have too little, too few logs, and then you don't know what's going on. You, oh, if only I had a log line here, now, now I need to redeploy everything for and go through QA for two hours or a day to get a new deployment out there. So instead of that, you can just inject a log and see what's going on again with conditions and uh, only for specific user if you want, etc. So, and, and metrics, you can also measure the time that a method takes or a, a block of code takes at, at that level of granularity as a programmer. Now you have APMs, but they're very big. They're essentially designed to uh, catch the entire web service and stuff like that, not to catch a specific line of code. That just doesn't exist. Something that's equivalent to a debugger in the cloud, in, in your server, literally. So I got introduced to that concept and saw the demo, which is impressive, very bare bones back then. And literally it was just the two founders. And I was impressed by them as people. They're actually much younger than I am, which is also very cool. And I like working in that relatively younger environment. And uh, we hit it off and said, let's try working together and see how it goes. And I started as a, a developer, actually, just writing the code and, and trying to get everything off the ground. I was literally the first uh, non-founder developer or the second one, depending on how you count it. And um, I just wrote most of the code for the server, the plugin, the CLI, you know, it really went, when you're the one of the first people in the company, you just write everything. So I did a lot of that for a while and it's pretty cool. I'm really happy about the way the product turned out. And it was literally less than two years ago that, actually not less, exactly two years ago that we started uh, that whole process and the product's absolutely amazing and taking off like a forest fire uh, in terms of uh, the way that uh, our customers are completely uh, enamored with it. Uh, so, so it very much uh, matches what I feel. And one of the things that when I, they showed me that demo, it kind of sent me back to problems that I had at Codename One, where uh, I just blogged about this recently. We had, um, like in our third year, uh, we used the App Engine and we used it a lot for all of our servers and backend stuff. And, uh, and it worked really relatively well up until that point. 
And at some point, billing just went crazy. You know, we used to pay $70 a month for, for billing, which was high, but okay. We paid $400 a month to Google for gold support, which was really expensive, but we said, okay, let's pay that. And suddenly we got bills for daily usage of over $1,000, which is like from monthly usage of $70 to $1,000 a day, it's enough to bankrupt a bootstrapped company, you know? And uh, that's insane. So we contacted Google's Google support and essentially we got the finger. They said, no, nah, it's a bug in your code. Now, I don't know if it was a bug. To this day, I don't know what the bug was. I don't. And I don't know if it was in my code or if Google released an update to App Engine that somehow triggered the bug that we had or had a bug in it that essentially created a situation. I have no idea. And that's exactly the problem that Lightroom is solving. I didn't know, didn't have the ability to ask my servers a question about how everything is built, how, how everything is running, uh, if caching is working correctly at this point. You know, you could with a debugger, you could do it locally, but locally it wouldn't have helped me because the environment wouldn't run locally because it depended on what well, depended on the data store, which was part of the app engine in the cloud and the problem only manifested in production. So in production, which is essentially what matters, the area where we care about. I mean, I don't care if the system runs in debug mode, it's great, it should, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is for the system to run on the servers. And that's an area where we have only limited observability. We can observe the system externally, but we can't um, dig into it deeply enough. We can't get the same level of observability we have when we're running locally. And that's literally a crime. <laughs> In this particular case, I was getting billed. I was going to run bankrupt. I was ripping out the few strands of hair I have left. And I had no idea. I was just guessing, throwing out code, writing more code, and you can't log because they bill you for logging. So, you know, you kind of, and that sort of helplessness that you feel in that particular case, uh, that's what Lantern is trying to say to help you fix problems that um, that are the worst kind of problems, the problems you can't possibly fix. And uh, when I talk to Lightroom customers, I'm amazed by the level, even richer companies. In our case, you know, throwing away $30,000 a month would have gotten us bankrupt uh, pretty quickly. Uh, for uh, companies that we're working with here, that's chunk change. You know, they wouldn't mind through that sort of level of failure. What they do have is amazing stories that go well beyond the, just the issues of cost. So some companies have systems that are so hard to debug that they accept things like 10% failure rates. You know, can you imagine a system that fails 10% of the time and they just do, okay, let's run it again. That's the solution. Why? Because they can't debug it. It's too complex to debug. They can't reproduce it locally. It fails a lot in production and they're blind. They can't see what's the problem. So 
their options are either rewrite the whole thing or and hope that it doesn't fail like that next time, which is, well, you know, failures tend to come back. Or live with it. And we're offering a third option, and that's actually get the same level of observability that you can get now. And that's something that I think no one is offering anyway. And I, I'm pretty stoked about it. It's, it's a completely new vertical that uh, needs to be uh, in every company, right? It's something that, like today, we can't really imagine ourselves without continuous integration. You know, back, I mean, back 20 years ago when I was working, there was no continuous integration. It didn't exist, right? It was something completely new. I remember when Mozilla first came out with their system and we were all floored by the idea of, wow, they're building like that, Donna. Wow, that's amazing. And this sort of created new fields, new types of developers. DevOps didn't exist. SRE didn't exist. All of those things didn't exist. And I think that this is a new vertical that will see sort of create a new type of community, maybe new types of roles and uh, and something that's essential for every company out there. And, and that's very exciting to me. So how your observation power helped you to uh, make things possible and also how you are able to be focused uh, uh, every time like you said, uh, uh, you you are putting your eyes and your ears on things in order to absorb things, in order to understand it very well, and how you are able to reach the requirements of your clients using these qualities of yours. So uh, I'm assuming you mean my personal observation skills, not the observability capabilities of the product, right? So. Um, Part of the thing here at Lantern, one of the benefits that I have is being part of the larger team. And I don't need to apply that same level of, of observation that I would need at Codename One, where we're a smaller team. Uh, here, um, there's a lot of um, backup in terms of different roles, each of which uh, handle a different aspect of customer communications, of extracting the needs from the customers, quantifying them to the market at large, and trying to sort of concentrate a single coherent set of tasks that we need to uh, convert to uh, actionable goals. So uh, product is obviously doing a lot of that work. Well, we have a couple of uh, people in that department who's job is solely just to decide where that where are we going next in terms of the product and talking with the customers to understand what works and what doesn't work and talking with future customers to understand what will make them pick up the platform and work with that. We also have uh, other roles that are similar to that, that work with the customers and do that sort of thing. My role as a developer advocate is more of a community at large. It's more low level. I talk to developers individually and try to communicate uh, needs from their, them into the company. Essentially, a uh, developer advocate is supposed to be the ears of the company, 
and listen to people from outside the company who want to tell us things. And here I'm talking more about the developer level, uh, actual people in the field who uh, might be picking up Lycron and who might never have heard about this, which is also a big, uh, a big market in that sense of people who uh, need to either understand things about the company or want to communicate to us things that matter. And that's just being out there for developers and helping with uh, understanding things that are relevant and applicable to us. Because one of the things I think that's important is um, today debugging, for instance, is one of those things where um, it's a skill that isn't really taught enough in general. And it's also a skill that's very deprecated in the community. So for instance, the other day I wrote, I read a tweet from a guy that um, tweeted that um, if you do test-driven development correctly, then debugging is an anti-pattern. And I don't want to be disparaging. You know, I don't want to say something negative because I didn't have that same experience. I don't know what type of experience he had as a developer, uh, but for me, uh, when I do test-driven development, which I do, is that I spend a lot of time in the debugger trying to debug the tests mostly, because most of my failures aren't really bugs in the code, they're bugs in the tests. That's, you know, the way I see it when I write a test-driven develop, uh, development project, uh, 90% of my, and that's a feel, I didn't check it statistically, but my feel is 90% of the bugs are in the test, and 10% of the bugs are actually bugs in the project that I found. And uh, I spend a lot of time debugging that, and I use the debugger tool to debug the test. I don't just run the test over and over and hope that this time it will pass, I just use a breakpoint and inspect variables and use all of the tools that debuggers provide to us. And yeah, and I use logs too. I think logs are debugging. That's another thing that people say. They try to sort of create a sort of, oh, I prefer logs uh, over debugging. Logging is great. And, and yeah, log logging is debugging. It's part of that single thing. And Lightroom, by the way, has logs. That's part of it. Because we think that's part of the project. And even more so, if you look at the debuggers, most debuggers in the IDE support logging. Most developers don't know that, but you can literally, there's an option if you enter the breakpoint to switch it to a log breakpoint and it will log and print out stuff. People don't know that. And you can literally in the debugger change a breakpoint to be a log instead of a breakpoint and uh, at least in IntelliJ and, and, and most modern uh, IDEs. And then you don't have to stop add a log, rerun the project, etc. just change it to a log. And um, so, so these are two things with different use cases, different values uh, that are all good. And uh, my job is to, the way I see it, is to educate people about the value of debuggers, because I think understanding how valuable debuggers are is a stepping stone to understand, okay, 
I love these here locally uh, and these familiar tools and how to use them better, these familiar tools. And then the next step is obviously, okay, using them in the cloud in production, also a good thing. So it's sort of, my job is sort of to educate and to educate all the way through. Also in general community knowledge and providing general value to the community. So what is Lightrun? So Lightrun allows you to um, debug your production server. You can essentially think of it as a debugger in production. And uh, I'll try to explain it slightly differently than the way I explained it before. You know how uh, an APM or an observability tool provides you some insight on your server. So those tools were built for DevOps people. You see a sort of console with charts and you can see this nice graph of how your server is doing. And you can see traces that show you all sorts of, okay, this web service is performing well, this web service has a failure rate, so great. So the thing is, where do you go next? If there's a failure rate or if there is a performance peak or something like that in the APM, then the DevOps needs to go to the developer and say, hey, wait, there's, there's this in the APM. Do something about it. Now, the developer looks at that and says, okay, now where's my tool? I can try and look at the code and guess why that happened. I can try to look at the logs and guess what happened. I, but I'm sort of, if I can't reproduce it locally and it's not in the logs, then my solution is um, I can add more logs. And then I have to wait, redeploy and do and so forth. Not ideal. So Lightrun is the solution that lets you debug in the production. It's essentially, it's a plugin that you install into IntelliJ or VS Code. We're launching VS Code like uh, at the end of this month, we're launching VS Code support. So, and one of the things that you can do there is you can just uh, open the source file, literally your project source file, go to a specific line and place a snapshot on that specific line. And this will give you sort of like a debugger, uh, stack trace, variable values, everything you'd get in a debugger for a specific line of code. So if you have a trace from an APM, it's, it leads you in the general direction. And then in Lightroom, you can actually go at the source level at a specific line, not at a, a web service, which might include 20, 100 methods that are invoked there. We can go to one specific line of code. We can ask the value of a specific variable, which are the sort of things that you can't normally do with a, uh, an APM, but you can do it in a debugger if you were debugging locally. Here, you can do the same things that you can do in a local debugger in the cloud. And the value is you can do it at scale. So it's, if you have, for instance, a thousand servers, like some of our customers do, and you have a bug that happens to a specific user. And because of uh, the, the way clustering works, it, it doesn't necessarily happen in the same server every time, right? So Lightrun lets you place a snapshot or a log or something like that on a specific line of code with a condition 
for the specific user and you can tag it so it will attach to all the relevant servers. And if the user uh, go this time hits a different server, it's okay because the snapshot or the log will still be hit in that server and you'll get that result. You'll, you'll get that information and it's all directly into your IDE. So as a developer, you get that same level of deep observability that you can get locally and you're still um, uh, directly into your IDE. So essentially it's like an APM, but designed for developers, not for DevOps. The analogy I give here is that a DevOps is kind of like a, a, an APM for DevOps is kind of like the dashboard on your, uh, on your car. It tells you the speed, it tells you the RPM, it has the check engine light and all sorts of stuff like that. Really, really, really important stuff. But then when the check engine light comes up, you take it to the shop, you take it to the mechanic. The mechanic comes to your, uh, your car, pulls out uh, his own computer, specialized computer, connects it to the engine, and that gives him that extra information. And that's Lightroom. The dashboard is like uh, the DevOps uh, dashboard, but the developers need a tool that goes into the engine and tells you what's deep inside the engine and what's going on with uh, this cylinder and that thing. And that's what we need. And so this isn't a tool that competes with APNs. It's a tool that sort of bridges that gap. I also, another analogy I give is kind of like the bat signal, like an APM is sort of the bat signal. And I like this analogy because it says the developer's Batman, right? So the bat signal gives you a sort of a general direction, but you need to know where to go. And here we're Inspector Gordon or something like that that tells you, okay, you need to go to that specific point and the, the details that you need about this mission or that, this and that. And this is exactly the difference. We can't give you what the APM gives you. We don't have the big picture. We don't need to. That's an APM. That's a good thing. It has big, the big picture and that's what DevOps guys need. We can give you, when you know what to ask, we can give you the information about that specific small area that which is what you care as a developer about the specific niche about the, the specific cut that that matters and, and sort of a great team up story you know if we continue the superhero analogy yeah i understood with the the car and rpm this example it, it, it is very clear you explained it very well so so how many people are using, how many developers are using this uh, service, this plugin? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> uh, right now, our target market are very large enterprises and uh, things uh, of that type. So it's not a metric that we check in terms of how many developers uh, work. I'm sure, I'm sure there's pe other people here that check that metric. Lightroom is a relatively new company, so getting the information about it out and getting people to know about it is, it will take time and it's not some, it's something that we barely started with. Uh, currently, most of our users are enterprises that picked it up and there's some big stories like Tabula, which you can see on uh, the website. There's this great video there where they talk about the type of, the value that they derive from it. And lots of other companies that you can also see the logos featured there. I'm not sure which ones I'm allowed to talk about too much, but they're big companies. And in some cases, some of the deals that we're seeing coming in, 
they're huge. With I'm talking millions of operations per second and stuff like that, which is insane, insane amounts of logs that they're already outputting to their existing servers. So it's the amount of information that some of these customers are processing is so huge. And so that to give you a scale, um, if we can just save them from outputting a few logs, it's thousands of dollars worth of money saved on just logging storage, just on that. So these are big customers and they're already relying on it. And they're the people that derive the most value for something like that. Because when uh, you're a big company and you need to deploy something, the process to deploy is much more difficult. So if you're a developer in a big company and you want to add a log just to see, oh wait, there's a problem, I need an, an, a bit more logging, then the process to deploy is so slow and so hard and wastes so much of a bit of time and, uh, and costs the company a lot of money. Uh, so the value, the product essentially pays for itself and, uh, and it isn't a cheap product. So it's a, that, that's a general value proposition in these huge, huge companies. So what about security in uh, Light Run? So there's a lot of, to talk about in security. It's uh, an hour's discussion in its own right. Uh, there's, first of all, the, the security of Light Run itself. Uh, Light Run was validated by several security uh, experts and uh, was pretty thoroughly uh, checked in that sense. It's also secure in the sense that um, the light developers don't uh, communicate with uh, the production servers. One of the slides I have in, in my talks normally is that uh, essentially the problem is today the DevOps are responsible for production, which uh, you know, back in my day, uh, production was just, you know, the sort of machine you'd literally walk over and uh, kick it and uh, you'd hear the hard drive spin. So, you know, it's working. That, that was observability. So back then, you know, we deployed to production, but production was kind of like a disaster. Today, production is guarded by DevOps and the, the stability has risen considerably. You know, we get five nines and it's not something completely out of the ordinary. And back then it wasn't at all. So uh, the problem is we don't want developers to do something that will damage production. You know, that's probably the first thing in terms of security. So the Lightroom server is something that's either deployed on premise or in the cloud, but either way, the servers connect to it. So when you deploy the Lightroom agent into your server, it connects to uh, the, uh, the Lightroom server and communicates with that. Developers, when they develop, use a uh, check with Lightroom using their IDEs, connect only to the Lightroom server. So for them, they have no access to production servers, none, no access whatsoever. DevOps is still 100% responsible for the production process and uh, the roles of DevOps are responsible for production and developers are aren't and don't have access to that, that's maintained. That clear line of separation, it's still there. But developers can now place things like snapshots and things like that into the production server. The thing is that those things are sandboxed. 
within Lycra. So they can't modify state. This is guarded against. If you try to put something that modifies state, it won't run. It won't change anything, it won't do anything. If you take too much CPU, uh, and you can do that because you can do conditional breakpoints and stuff like that. You can add expressions, like you can log things like uh, hit this line and then have an expression in it, like uh, and literally call a method within that expression and print out the value of the method that the method returns. And that's really, really valuable. If you want to add a log that uh, prints out a return value of a method, you can do that. But if you take too much CPU, it will be the logging will be stopped, paused for for a few cycles. So you can't uh, crash the servers by logging too much or placing too many snapshots. You can't do it inadvertently or on purpose. And th those are very important things in terms of security. And, and because essentially your servers are still 100% behind the firewall, behind everything, and only they communicate outside to the Lycran server. Uh, every element of security is still maintained. There's no potential uh, room for weakness here. So, and obviously everything is on top of uh, SSL with um, uh, certificate pinning and everything. So all of those basic checkboxes for security are obviously in place as well as all the authentication levels and role distributions and, and all uh, the dot dies and the cross keys. So, as a developer advocate, uh, as uh, 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 your part of uh, uh, one of the part of your job is to communicate and understand uh, the needs and the requirements of the client before before knowing about Lightrun. What do they ask you? What do their doubts are? What do uh, their uh, uh, needs and how you fulfill uh, uh, by telling the service that you have. So it's not exactly my job um, because there's a product and there's other roles that you uh, that are more uh, uh, geared towards that. Although I do get asked that a bit because mostly because I was one of the early developers here and, and because I'm, I'm a more public figure inside Lightroom, so people do contact me to ask um, the, these sort of questions. And uh, generally, it very much depends on the person asking. So for instance, the other day, I had a long talk with a person who comes from a deep background of security, and he wanted to know how you can use Lightroom to debug security issues. And there's lots of great, Lightroom isn't a tool that was built for security. But because it's a general purpose tool, you can use it to debug lots of security related issues. Uh, you can play snapshots in uh, various weakness places. You can validate if a system was infiltrated. You can literally uh, inspect that in real time and see what's going on in terms of uh, infiltration or an attack and uh, or validate a security weakness uh, or bug report that you might have gotten. All of those things can be done with Lightroom relatively easily, even though it wasn't designed to be a security tool in its general purpose. So every person that asks me essentially asks from his own uh, specific set of experiences. 
and uh, that that's the the last one I can think of. Uh, the one before that, uh, mostly folk was from a company that dealt with performance, and he was concerned about performance. And the answer to that is similar to the one I said before about security. We uh, throttle over usage and keep CPU down way, way, way down. So performance is there is performance overhead because obviously there is an agent, there is some uh, some things that happen. But by our measurements, it, it's well below five percent CPU in terms of uh, well below and practically no memory overhead, a very small memory overhead. So you can use it with uh, almost no noticeable impact on day-to-day -day performance. When it isn't running, it's almost undetectable in terms of performance. So uh, unless you actually use it in this particular case, it's mostly hidden. So those are sort of questions I got recently. So tell me you as a co-founder of uh, Codename One. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so Codename One is a very different type of company. Uh, Codename One is an open source company. So our code is literally out there. It's based on something that we started, Chem uh, Fishbane, my co-founder and myself, uh, started at some microsystems. Uh, when I started working with Sun, it was uh, the late 90s, and uh, Java, uh, and I literally ported, um, I wanted to write a mobile application. Back then, mobile was Palm Pilots. I don't know if you remember those, uh, probably maybe a bit young for that. Uh, there were sort of these pen devices, I guess, uh, you know, not even mobile phones, but they were super cool. I had tons of them, loved them. Uh, and I was programming for those, and I hated programming them because it wasn't C, it was painful, it wasn't fun. So I said, I want to do that in Java. So uh, there was a Java kit for that, but it was in Windows. And I sort of said, okay. Uh, so uh, I, I wanted to work on Linux because I like Linux. And uh, so, so I ported the whole thing to Linux uh, and uh, got working, wrote to the mailing list, like, hey, I got this running on Linux, it's, it works great. And uh, like an hour later, I get a call from some microsystems and you know, come work for us and uh, okay. And uh, it sort of moved on and, and snowballed from there. Uh, and uh, eventually I did, I did there lots of stuff for mobile and things like that because the local development uh, uh, team was focused on the mobile area. And uh, one of the things I, uh, I got to do is uh, that uh, I worked on the wireless toolkit and things like that. And then uh, my, my little best friend, which is who is him, was working on a project of uh, creating a framework for cross-platform for all mobile devices uh, at Sun Microsystems back in 2007, if I remember correctly. So he gave me a call before he started. Actually, gave me a call and started consulting with me on that. And I said, you know, don't do that. It's too complicated. Don't get into that. It's it's. It's one of those things that you get into and you never get out because it's so big. And he didn't listen to me. He just took the other advice that I gave about, okay, if you're already going to do that, then do this, that, and that. 
which he did. And then he called me up and, uh, and I came over and he implemented something that was really nice. So they said, okay, why don't you join that, that team and start building that? And I said, okay, it's great working with him always. So I started working on that too. And we just kept building that and talking to customers about it and uh, what were they, their needs for, that, for this. And, uh, and we built Luit, which became very popular back then, just as the iPhone was coming out. Uh, but it only worked for J2ME and uh, RIM devices later on for Android. Uh, so it kept running for a while and we ported it to iOS and everything, but uh, we couldn't get Sun or later on Oracle to publish that code for political reasons, not technical ones. So we really, really, really tried to push it from within Sun and later on within Oracle, but there's also was conflict with the JavaFX team, which felt we were treading on their territory, which they didn't have anything for mobile. Not back then, not today. You know, literally nothing that's tenable. But back then it was completely um, untenable. And we tried, we tried to we work with the FX team and some of my good friends worked there and we tried to get it to work. And it just was too slow, definitely for the devices back then, and too big. Uh, so eventually, in uh, 2000, late 2011, we both and myself left uh, Sun, uh, Oracle by that time, and we started working on Codename One. And we essentially forked the project that we had at Sun, uh, renamed it Codename One, changed a lot of code there. So you know there was a huge refactor, moved everything to different packages kept the license because it's Oracle, you, don't, you never know. Uh, but um, essentially sort of built on top of that and uh, also added build servers and things like that. So you don't need a Mac to build an iOS app. You don't need a, a Windows machine to build a Windows app. We added ports for Windows Phone later on for UWP, uh, for JavaScript, for desktop and uh, Mac, Windows, etc and essentially created a complete environment for cross-platform that's essentially the mo most portable cross-platform uh, environment ever made uh, to this day, I think. And it's uh, essentially, it's been running for quite a while and uh, it's open source and also has a commercial uh, aspect to it. Uh, there's uh, literally, a lot of stuff there that I can talk about, but you know, it's it's another hour of discussion uh, in its own right. So you're into Oracle uh, in Java from long time, and I can see uh, I can understand it. So and you're a rock star speaker. I can understand you're a good speaker, and you're an author, blogger, versus hacker blogs and you also have a blog called talk to the duck dot dev yeah is that your own blog it's a blog that i started here to focus mostly because i have several blogs um each one has a different sort of demographic it's aiming at so people don't get boggled by noise <clears throat> so for instance in my coding one blog i write about coding one stuff that might not interest the people who read talk to the duck 
talk to the duck is a blog about debugging. It's more general purpose. So if I want to write something about Lightroom, I'd write it in the Lightroom blog. Uh, if I want to write something that's very general purpose, sort of uh, production or debugging and things like that, that fits everyone, the wide audience, then I'll write it over there. Yeah. So if I can understand, uh, you are into everything, writing, speaking, and uh, the technology side, and uh, you are into communication side. So how you are able to uh, handle all these roles completely? Each role have its own importance. How you are able to be perfect uh, and uh, be uh, uh, effective and uh, productive in every uh, every so, role of? I don't do everything concurrently. So I, when I write, I write, uh, and uh, I, when I speak, I speak. I don't do both at the same time. Uh, and speaking is, isn't something that really takes. Uh, too much effort for me today. I used to do that a lot and I still do that quite a bit. Uh, so, and, and writing either. I used to write blog posts every day for a period of time and I can just churn them out without much difficulty. And that's kind of one of the things that comes with experience. You do that and keep doing it and doing it. And eventually you learn to sort of do a brain dump into the keyboard. And the same thing is true about speaking. I don't need to prepare in order to start talking and talking and talking. And as you can see, uh, we'll, we're running down the clock bit pretty quickly here. And there's still a lot left to talk about. So it's not very, uh, very challenging for me to do most of the stuff that I do, just because I've been doing it for so long. So yeah, and all of those roles aren't really different. When I speak, I speak about the technologies that are programmed. So I know the steps, so I know how to program them. And I know how to write about that because I programmed it. It's just I developed additional skills of writing and, uh, and of public speaking, mostly about practicing both of those uh, specific skills. And initially, when I started public speaking, I was terrible at it. And I actually thought I was good because I have a lot of confidence, which is something that you can't really, it's something you need to have. Uh, I don't know how to, to pass that along. I wish I could pass it to some developers because I know some developers who are wonderful developers and would be amazing speakers. And unfortunately, they're shy, not like myself. Uh, and they need, I wish I could give them some of my skill in, in that sense of my confidence. Uh, but, but I don't know how to transfer that. I had it naturally always. Uh, so, but to do to be an actually good speaker, that's something I had to learn, and that I learned through entrepreneurship. When I started my uh, second company, I uh, attended a, sort of um, an accelerator, and we did a lot of work over presentation to investors and things like that, and getting your pitch right, and that really, really helped me in condensing what I'm trying to say and working on my speech patterns, which were all over the place. I was a fast talker. I didn't pronunciate uh, the things I was trying to say uh, well enough. I didn't pause to take time to clarify my points. And uh, I didn't stare at the camera properly. I didn't. Um, I, I was a, a problematic speaker overall, 
And when I saw myself speaking next to other people who were better skilled and got the right feedback and got uh, and practiced it, I was at first very embarrassed. You know, I thought about, oh my God, all of those past talks, but I thought I rocked it. And I was awful. I was absolutely awful. And, but then, you know, like I said, you learn to take shame and throw it away. And, uh, you know, there's not much you can do about it. So shame is kind of like a waste of my life. So I got rid of that and moved on. And now I'm a better speaker as a result of that, because I'm not afraid to speak anymore. I'm shameless. And uh, I also practice that specific craft to a point where it's actually reasonable and I can talk without uh, without without it being too embarrassing. So what is your uh, average accuracy in all these roles? Accuracy? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I follow that. Uh, maybe it's an idiom I'm not familiar with. Uh, accuracy for um, for a role. Yeah. Uh, you mean if the role uh, matches me? More, uh, I mean, uh, you are able to handle uh, different roles. How accurate you are, how uh, focused, or how how much uh, calculated okay. and uh, analyzed, and so in, the, in terms of thinking, in terms of thinking and uh, presenting yourself in different roles. So I think of all of those roles as a single role that has many facades. So kind of like a facade you would have uh, in programming where essentially the core is still me. All of those roles are me and the way I present it. And when you're seeing my writing, my writing is me. It's just me on the paper. And when you see me speaking or uh, doing a presentation, that's me only in video or, on, uh, or within the presentation. When you see my code, it's definitely me. So all of those things are just facades of a single person uh, with uh, uh, one uh, with a set of abilities to uh, execute on those uh, different facades. But all of those specific things are things you can they're muscles you can train. Okay, you can you can become a better writer just by writing and keeping keeping on writing. You can become a better speaker by practicing that and by having people who know that art teach you that. And the same is true about writing. There's great books about writing. There's lots of information about that and how to improve your writing skills. There's tools, there are automated tools that are amazing about improving your writing style and uh, and getting uh, more to the point. Uh, all of those things are skills just like programming skills, which you can improve just by doing them and studying the written material on the subject. So I, I think I'm I'm doing okay and constantly improving in, in all of them. So I'll conclude by asking two to more, uh, two to three questions. Okay. Yeah, so what are the advantages of using Lightrun? Uh, instantly 
being able to instantly observe uh, what's actually happening in your system in production. And that's something that nothing else can possibly uh, offer, not that level of surgical precision and uh, letting the developer observe. That's a huge, huge part there, because up until now, observability was limited to DevOps. And this is a developer level observability tool that lets you uh, find the bugs in their place and the ability to rid your system of bugs that that's an advantage that I think uh, no other tool can uh, can come close, especially in production, because there's lots of tools to help you find bugs, but most of them are during the development cycle. Very few go to the production level, and that's where it matters. And those are the worst kind of bugs. So, as a problem solver, as a person who is into uh, uh, programming, as a uh, a developer advocate, I'm sure uh, you might have uh, saw, you know, uh, faced, experienced a lot of bugs. So what do you say to, to the people who are watching and listening to our conversation, especially to the developer advocate? What do you say? Your experience, your valuable advisors will help them in uh, making uh, things possible. Um, in terms of solving bugs or in terms of uh, career? Yeah. yeah, in terms of solving uh, solving bugs. Uh, well, I, I have this kind of huge series about this, uh, the developer check, uh, the debugger checklist, which essentially goes over the process to solving bugs, but I'll summarize it for you in like two sentences. Um, check your, validate your assumptions. Uh, check again. <laughs> you know, literally, because bugs are just process of validating, debugging is the process of validating assumptions. And the bugs that are hard to find, you know, most of, lots of bugs were just, we go there and we look at it and oh, it's clear, found it, that's it. But the bugs that are hard, the ones that you start digging into and ripping your hair out and not understanding, that's because usually we assumed something incorrectly and then we kind of got stuck looking at the wrong place. And one of the tricks here is actually uh, rubber ducking, uh, which uh, is the process of taking a rubber duck and telling him about your problems, uh, which is uh, the process you can talk literally to anything, to an inanimate object, to a friend, uh, talk about the problem. But then uh, the basic thing is, you need to walk backwards, start, validate assumption one, you know, the system uh, at the most highest level, validate that this basic thing is working, then this thing and slowly narrow down. Because lots of times we skip or we don't do the test correctly to validate the assumption and something goes to the seed and, uh, and we miss uh, the bug in, in those uh, tiny holes that you have in the seed. And uh, essentially, uh, you need to uh, narrow down, like you're hunting prey in that sense, where you come after from all directions and try to, uh, like the lionesses do when, uh, when they hunt, when they run and chase the prey here and uh, their teammates are on the other side. So you need to do the same thing for bugs. 
you need to slowly narrow down the area and circuit it and circuit it until you find it. And we sometimes rush too quickly to the center because we assume it's here because that's where the symptom is. And that's not the right place necessarily. If, the, if you don't find it immediately, then you miss something and you need to start validating. So is there any particular way that works for you that works for many people in order to uh, reduce the effort and time and, and save the time to uh, solve the problems? Well, uh, experience is probably the best way most people learn how to, uh, but that's obviously a, kind of a cop-out, so I'll try to be more uh, uh, proactive here on things you can actually do in the short term. Um, you know, essentially, you need to get toolings right, and uh, it, it means uh, doing uh, style checks and stuff like that, doing automated tests, preventing bugs from even appearing to begin with. So for instance, a small thing like having a style check that prevents you from doing a try catch without uh, printing out the stack trace, you know, things like that. that. That's a small thing to add. So that will be checked when you commit code, that it won't allow you to commit that code. That's a, that's a bug. Because when that will happen, you won't know. And you will spend hours looking for it. Uh, so, and these are small things you can easily do. Uh, having a basic uh, uh, logging for all of uh, the important areas. So, when something fails, you do see the logs, having decent tests. All of those things are the starting points for finding a bug that they help you. Uh, and they don't, by the way, they don't contradict using Lightroom. They're, I think they're part of a holistic view of using everything that we have at our disposal to prevent bugs from ever happening, right? Because that, that's a true value. Uh, and, but obviously, there's lots of types of bugs. There's performance bugs, there's uh, actual crashes. There's uh, cash misses, which can cost us uh, thousands of dollars, as I've talked about before. There's a huge range of bugs. So uh, we need to use every single tool to our disposal, CI, code reviews, uh, everything that, that we can, and just use it more effectively and take it seriously. You know, sometimes in code reviews, I see people focusing on nonsense, like, oh, you're uh, style here or the variable naming and stuff like that. I don't care about that. Don't waste the time because when you do that with code review, you essentially make code review unpleasant. You make people feel like they're being criticized for their code. Use code review to find things that would actually improve the code. That will actually, that will make the, the process pollinating to the other party. Right, so in code review, give a review like that's good, uh, but maybe if we store this value in a variable and uh, do instead of doing it in one line, which is more uh, concise, do it in two lines. And if we have a failure, we'll have a more accurate inf uh, bit of information about which line is responsible. Because, for instance, a small thing like uh, writing more concise code seems really cool as a developer. I want to write less code. Who doesn't? I want to write fewer lines of code. 
But no, that's a problem because if you do that and you get a failure and you get a stack trace at line X, then you don't know if it's the first part of line X or the second part of line X. And now you have to go back and start figuring out which one. And a good code review would look at that and say, okay, that's nice. You wrote a bit, a bit less code. Maybe don't do that. <laughs> you know, maybe break that down a bit. Maybe write a bit more code and do it in a way that we can later on figure out uh, what uh, caused the failure more precisely. So if you if you send me your links, your web links, uh, uh, I'll put in the description of this video. People who find our video on YouTube can see uh, uh, about uh, about light run and about uh, cold one talk. Uh, yeah, not there, but there, there, that will work. Yeah, it will be useful for for developers. At the same time, uh, the people who don't know about light run can understand can can use the service can 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 implement in their business. Great, thank you. Yeah, and also, uh, and also, uh, as a developer advocate and uh, as a co-founder of, uh, uh, as a developer advocate of Lightrun, and uh, as a developer, uh, as a co-founder of uh, Codename One, what do you say about? What is your observation of about this conversation? What do you, what do you say about my performance and uh, my questioning in this conversation? Uh, good questions. Uh, it was fun talking to you. And I enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, what do you say about my videos on YouTube? Have you seen any videos of mine? I'm sorry, I just briefly looked at them. Uh, I'm, I just don't have as much time as I used to. I have this pile of books that I'm supposed to read right now that's been sitting on my desk for uh, a few weeks. And I feel bad about that because we, I asked the admin head to buy them for me. And now I'm kind of, I feel obliged to read them and I finish books really quickly and I haven't finished any of them. Uh, actually, I finished one, uh, but it's, I just don't have uh, as much time to view things and, uh, and listen to things as I used to. I'm actually right now I'm a bit late for the next uh, conference I have as we speak. Yeah, the last question is the uh, last one. I just wanted to tell you because you are into IT from long time. I just want your observation. Mm -hmm. uh, I do I do interviews of people who are into different professions, not only tech, non-technical people. I did more than 500 interviews and uh, people who are into IT industry who have 25 to 30 plus in experience and also people who are into other professions who are aged about 50 to 60, 70, 13 to I mean 18 plus all age groups, all country people, different backgrounds, different cultures, they are, they are there on my show. So I'm, I did master's in software engineering and graduation in computer science and engineering. So how do this uh, video series and interviews uh, uh, with different country people who are into different professions and technology people like great people like you, so talking with you, what do I add value to my, uh, uh, my resume or my... Uh, uh, my uh, career? Mm, I don't know really. Um, my specific um, career path was very different to yours. Uh, and I think our generations are very different in that sense. We, My daughter wouldn't, was shocked that YouTube didn't exist like uh, uh, 20 years ago, that, that it wasn't 
wasn't there. Uh, so obviously it's, uh, uh, you know, um, it's difficult for me to imagine the type of path that you're going with today compared to my own and uh, and the, the type of experiences and how you can uh, communicate that. You know, it's, uh, so any insight I give you would be, you know, from my own bias and probably not as valuable. So, yeah, thank you for uh, your words uh, and uh, thank you for spending your time here on my show. Can I put this video on my YouTube channel with your permission? Sure. And also, can I put this video and audio clip on my podcast, website, internet, social media, everywhere with your permission? Sure. No problem. Yeah. Thank you, Shai. Keep going. Keep doing what you love. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye.